When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the brand new series of Hidden Histories in partnership with the Arts and Humanities Research Council and the BBC's prestigious New Generation Thinkers Scheme. Since 2010, the New Generations Thinker Scheme has developed a new generation of 100 academics who can bring the best of university research and scholarly ideas to a broad audience through the media and public engagement. It's a chance for early career researchers to cultivate the skills to communicate their research findings to those outside the academic community. I am thrilled to be able to invite a selection of New Generation Thinkers to discuss their research on the podcast. The guests on this series of Hidden Histories discuss a multitude of fascinating topics, from famine relief over the last two centuries to the dark side of the Italian Renaissance. There is more information on the New Generation Thinker Scheme on the Arts and Humanities Research Council webpage, detailing events, programmes and reading material relating to the scheme and the NGT's research. I'll link all of this in the show notes, but in the meantime, I hope you enjoy this special series. Dr Joe Cohen, welcome to Hidden Histories. It's lovely to be here. Thanks for having me, Helen. So your subject, you look at consumption, capitalism, patriotism in the US and how affluence and consumerism has shaped the history of the United States, especially in the 19th century. So how can we look at consumer culture to try and understand the emotions of people living in 19th century America? That's a great question. Well, I think that Americans in the 19th century are facing a rapidly changing world when it comes to consumer culture. This is a this is a world particularly for Americans who are living in New York and Boston and Philadelphia where the goods that they can buy are just changing, you know, year to year, proliferating in their homes, in their urban spaces. And it just offers them up a totally new way to engage with the world in some ways. In terms of engaging with patriotism, it offers a really wonderful way. And particularly in 1861, when the American Civil War breaks out, they're suddenly confronted with huge numbers of ways in which they can express their their patriotism, which they absolutely understand as an emotion, a really sort of deeply felt sentiment they can engage with that sentiment through this this plethora of new goods and whether that is you know stationery or some women like to buy united states you know kind of stars and stripes cuffs and collars to put on their to their dresses or bonnets and ribbons or making flags 
all of these new goods give them a way of expressing their emotion. It's kind of a mass-produced patriotism, which is completely new because really they haven't had that opportunity before. So I think consumer culture, we can see how Americans sort of fall on it in 1861 and use it to great effect to express um, this, this sort of very urgent emotion, really, which is to show their loyalty and their devotion to a nation that is falling apart at the seams as they go into civil war. That's a very different society as to as, as what America was in its origins when it was colonised after people came in on the Mayflower from England. It's a very puritanical society. At what point did that the original vision for America as a place of moderation and prudence change to invite this type of consumer culture? Well, I think that early America, colonial America, comes, you know, there's sort of lots of different communities, frankly, that, that, that come over early on. I mean, the Puritans, obviously, you're right, are one of them, and they have a quite sort of stringent relationship with the idea of materialism. Although, you know, if you're buying black cloth, to, to look sad and sober, that's actually quite expensive. So it wasn't that they were, they were scrimping on, on, their, on their material uh, possessions. But, you know, there are lots of other communities that sort of make their way over. And you can think of like the early uh, Virginians who very quickly uh, set themselves up as, as uh, wealthy landowners, as plantation owners. And of course, they're not just buying expensive material goods for their households, but they're investing very quickly in enslaved people as well. So there's lots of different types of sort of early, if you like, early consumer cultures in America. But you're right, there's obviously a huge difference between what we see in the colonial period and what we see by the 19th century. I think it's interesting to think about that trajectory if we look kind of briefly at the American Revolution. I mean, this was a this was a revolution that in some ways was was founded on the power of the boycott, wasn't it? You know, everyone's dumping tea in the harbour and American women are declaiming that they'd rather wear homespun rather than buy British goods. And of course, that was an expression of politics at the time that was attempted to reject British imperialism. And it was quite successful. I mean, it works very well as a symbolic politics. But it's probably fair to say that it's not totally popular. And if we look immediately after the revolution, people are quite interested in buying imported goods again, and it doesn't, it doesn't last all that long. And I think part of that is because those mass-produced goods that we're talking about in the 19th century aren't as widely available. So I think that's making a bit of a difference to how uh, people express their politics. You mentioned briefly the slave trade and the export of, of, of people. How did the slave trade change attitudes to wealth and consumerism in America? And what sort of emotions were, were tied to that? I think, you know, obviously Americans who own, in, you know, who, who are enslavers, who, who own slaves, have a really complicated relationship, unsurprisingly, with the slaves that they purchase. You know, on the one hand, enslaved people are the most valuable form of property that exists in America on the eve of the Civil War. Their dollar value, if you like, is more than all of the value of banks, factories, and I think it's railroads combined on the eve of the Civil War. So this is an immensely... Really? Yeah. See, I had no idea it was that, it was that lucrative, and uh, I suppose you could say an industry. 
Yes. Well, I think you should call it an industry. I, I think that's absolutely how uh, many you know, enslavers think about it. And it functions as an industry in many disturbing ways. There's a clear, you know, well, after, after the end of the Atlantic slave trade, there is a growing internal slave trade where whole states kind of start organizing their industry around, around sending slaves into the deep south. You know, no, and this is not just a southern industry. Um, New York, for example, is deeply enmeshed in this industry. You know, they are the, the people who insure enslaved lives, with, of course, the difference being that, you know, if you have uh, life insurance for a slave, it's the owner who gets the insurance money when the enslaved person dies. You know, it is the New Yorkers who are shipping all of the, the sort of slave produced cotton back to, to Britain and, and sort of being part of that transatlantic trade that makes slavery profitable. And on plantations, we can see in, in slate, you know, sort of um, plantation manuals and magazines like Bow's Review, for example, which was a really popular magazine to help sort of southern planters get the most out of their plantation tips on in on you know what they would call slave management and plantation management and it's very calculating so in one ways you know this is absolutely an industry and it's it's a very capitalist industry in fact some historians would argue it's the absolute vanguard of modern capitalism on the other hand and you asked me about how does an enslaver have an emotional attachment to their in, to their slave i mean this is deeply controversial and it's very difficult to pull apart because we have to ask ourselves when enslavers write about their slaves you know how are they imagining themselves they often imagine themselves as paternal benevolent slaveholders but were you know the evidence shows they most often weren't and yet and this is the bit that i find interesting and i'm sort of researching at the moment when enslaved people ran away and when they made it out of the south and into sort of northern urban centers like boston for example enslavers would pursue them and try and get them back. This is the famous story of Uncle Tom's Cabin, for example, and how the Anthony Burns trial is the actual sort of real case where enslavers would pursue their, their, their slave property into the north. But what's interesting about this is that occasionally abolitionist societies would say, OK, you've, you've found your, your piece of property. Let us buy this piece of property off you at market price. And enslavers would say no. And that's interesting, isn't it? Because if this is really just a sort of an industry and it's a sort of capitalist marketplace where, you know, the value is set at market price, then why were those enslavers refusing to be compensated for, you know, market price for their for their slave property? And I think the answer lies in this very odd emotional relationship that we have yet to understand better about how they felt about that piece of property, which sounds jarring, and I think mm. it should be jarring. It's an uncomfortable sort of power. Deeply uncomfortable. Yes, it's a, a hugely uncomfortable power for us to contemplate. But for the enslavers, there's clearly an emotional attachment to that piece of property that runs so deep that they are willing to throw off that sort of profit maximizing, shall we say, rational part of themselves that sort of drove their their business forward. So I think there's a lot more we need to figure out about the relationship between 
capitalism and emotional attachments, particularly to property and to what people bought and sold and how they related to the things that sort of the material, of course, the slave was, you know, not a material thing, but the material things in their lives. And obviously the slave, you know, the end of the abolition movement sparked the civil war. Mm. That's a large part of it. You've been working a lot on patriotism during the civil war and, and you, you mentioned how people would buy ribbons and pins and flags. Yes. On a deeper level, how did people demonstrate patriotism via, via consumerism or, or things? That's a good question. I, you know, I think there's a huge range of ways in which particularly Northern Americans are demonstrating their patriotism. So one of the first ways that this happens is through the purchase of flags. There's a sort of explosion of stars and stripes in April 1861. Is that when the stars and stripes became the, I suppose, the sort of symbol of, of the United States or the symbol of, of America? No, no, the the Stars and Stripes goes back to, well, at least to the War of 1812. The song itself, there's a great, actually good, the, the Stars and Stripes was a poem by a poet called Francis Scott Key. And he writes it as he watches the Battle of Baltimore in 1814. It's the bombardment of Fort McHenry. And he writes this very patriotic poem in 1814. And it does get turned into a song, but it's actually set to a British drinking song. The tune was, a, was a, <laughs> I think it was a late 18th century British drinking song, which was, you know, a bit of, I mean, Americans have trouble like that with their songs because the other one is My Country Tis of Thee that they like to sing in the 19th century. But that's actually set to the tune of the British national anthem. So they have a little trouble. And in fact, there is a competition during the Civil War in 1861 where the some sort of the great and the good of New York get together and they create what's called a committee upon a national hymn. And they offer a $500 reward for anyone who can come up with the best kind of, you know, new national song for this very urgent new national moment. And it's a total flop. Um, they, they get all of these entries and they read through them and nobody is happy with them. And, you know, the, the competition organiser has all these, these reasons for it. But actually, it, it felt quite clear to people. And it was sort of an article in the sort of popular Godie's Lady book, uh, sort of popular ladies magazine at the time. It was like, there's no surprise this was a complete yeah. flop. You can't, you can't buy patriotic sentiment. And I think that tells that tells you something exactly about this odd relationship that Americans are struggling with in eight, in 1860 and 1861 and so on, which is on the one hand, they can absolutely see all of the possibilities for expressing their patriotism through commercial means. In a sense, they look to the, the marketplace to amplify their feelings. But when it comes to actually creating that feeling, you know, if it's sort of something more than amplifying, if it's sort of market purchased patriotism, that becomes really uncomfortable and they discard that. So that the committee upon a national hymn sort of uh, had to tuck tail and, and turn away and uh, they gave up really. And instead, John, John Brown's body becomes the sort of rousing chorus that uh, everybody sort of sings, particularly in the Civil War, which actually had abolitionist roots. So that served a better purpose in the end. And you mentioned flags. So obviously, because it's the Civil War, how did the flag change for either side? 
The, the union is largely represented by northern states. There are a few that sort of sit on the border of the south, but it's largely the northern states. The Confederacy is the south and the slave south, and they create their own nation. And in doing that, they also create their own flag. But there's quite a lot of flags, as it were, fluttering around at the time. You know, every state has its own flag. Every regiment has its own flag. So there are a lot of sort of different colours fluttering about, as it were. But it's definitely clear that in April 1861, the Union turns to the Stars and Stripes as the flag that they want to fly. And part of that, we can see again how sort of consumerism sort of takes over the sort of the use of the flag, if you like. So in the early months of the war, there's such a high demand that the usual way that society would have coped with this, which is, you know, women sitting down and stitching flags, is no longer viable. The demand for flags is just far too high. And so you get, you know, clever entrepreneurs immediately answering the demand and offering things like 46 small flags for 50 cents in newspapers and offering women a chance to purchase their colours rather than, you know, sew them up for their husbands or brothers or whatever and send them off with them. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Do you find that the Confederates were pushing harder for this sort of, I guess, commercial propaganda because they were trying to create more of an an identity, like a national identity? Or do you think that it was quite equal? I think the Confederates run into trouble early on because so much of what's being produced, commercially produced, is centred in the North. You know, I mentioned Debose Review earlier, this this uh, magazine that planters would read to improve their, their sort of slave plantations. Well, it's printed in New York because that's where the publishing houses were. That's where the printers were. A lot of the, you know, sort of smaller manufacturers and so on, they are centred in the north. So southern patriotism has to look a little bit different. And early on, they're, they're coping with massive unrest as well as the sort of mainstay of their economy, which is the cotton plantation, of course, is disrupted. Um, And as the war goes on, it's disrupted by enslaved people running away and abandoning their labour. So they have a set of problems that, you know, the North is not facing. And, you know, 
In addition, the South is then blockaded by Union forces, so they have even fewer material resources. So I think their patriotism had to look different in that regard, because they don't have access to those kinds of consumer goods. But that said, you know, they they don't ignore the problem of patriotism at all. They are struggling with it, though, because... Part of their argument for why they should be going to war was about states' rights. And the states themselves commanded the loyalty of many of their fighting men. So one of the other big problems the Confederacy faces is that as the war drags on, you know, people, you know, are deserting. And part of that is because they're like, well, I thought I was fighting to protect my hearth and home, but it doesn't look like that anymore. It looks like I'm fighting to protect some plantation owner's hearth and home in a state that's miles from my own. And so I'm out of here. So they have, I think, a different and more complex relationship with patriotism. What was the relationship between patriotism and the emotional aspect of spending? So, I mean, was there a was there a sense of was there a mood of sort of money and spending and this commercialism muddying the cause? Or was it was it like for like? Was it just a necessity? No, I think you're right. It is absolutely troubling to Northern Americans that they can spend money to express what should have been such a sort of pure and unadulterated emotion. In fact, early on in the war, you get a lot of, uh, you know, preachers, for example, saying, oh, it's this crass materialism that's going to be our undoing. You know, we need a strong, unsullied patriotism and that cannot be bought. You know, it's commercialism and materialism that has sort of vitiated our spirits. And so there's great distrust, I think, about what the commercial successes of the North might mean for Northern patriotism and whether their patriotism will be enough to sustain the Union throughout the war. But at the same time, over the course of the 19th century, the federal government has learned that it can raise important money for the for the nation through tariffs through essentially taxing consumer spending so there's a real tension even as the war breaks out over what the role of the consumer ought to be. And again, that takes us back to the revolution because during the revolution, Americans had had a very different relationship to consumption because of its setting within an imperial economy. Now, as a national economy in, you know, in 1861, that's a very different set of questions. And the federal government certainly has seen over the 19th century just how powerful consumer spending can be in terms of of raising monies. And in fact, as the war breaks out, tariffs is really the only way the federal government knows to raise money. You know, they don't have an income tax yet. They don't have, you know, a huge state bureaucracy that can levy taxes all that easily. In fact, the biggest part of the state is the customs house. So, you know, they realise early on that consumers in the Civil War are going to be useful in terms of raising money for the for the union cause. And yet... There's this anxiety that, oh, my gosh, if we spend too much money or we try and buy our patriotism, it's not going to be a powerful enough feeling to get us through this war. Yet the role of the consumer became all the more important in the development of America's economy. So in the late, is it the late 19th century, was that around the time of the rise of the department store? 
Yes. So after the Civil War, we see, you know, consumer culture take on sort of ever greater strides. And we see it in things like, yes, the the department store, Wanamaker's in Philadelphia, Macy's in New York. These are that's the this is the era of the classic department store. I think we've sort of probably witnessed its decline now. But this is the moment when, um, you know, A.T. In fact, A.T. Stewart is the first person to build a department store as we'd understand it. That's in New York. Um, And that is before the Civil War, but it really sort of comes on in leaps and bounds after the Civil War. It's also the era in which we see the development of things like national catalogues, like the Sears Roebuck catalogue, for example, where people can sort of have these, um, you know, booklets sent to their home and suddenly they're leafing through mass produced goods that they can buy and be the same as anybody else in the country. So I think after the Civil War, we see a sort of the intensification of consumer culture networks, and it unifies the country. I wouldn't say it's the only thing that unifies the country after the Civil War, but it certainly does, you know, bring people into a realisation that they can buy the same things as, you know, anybody else across this vast country. And it is vast. I think we sometimes forget just how enormous it is and how different it is from one coast to the other. But you know, if you're getting the same Sears Roebuck catalogue as, you know, in in Nebraska as someone in, you know, New York, well, that's pretty astonishing. Yeah. Did it change the, the American attitude to affluence, the rise of the department store? There was there more importance attached to attached to ownership of nice things one would buy? Yes, I think attitudes towards affluence are changing. On the one hand, as more and more goods become available, the idea that a nice middle class parlour is within the grasp of more people. And so perhaps more people sort of are able more accurately to measure uh, class and status through uh, material goods, you know, like whether you have this kind of uh, carpet, a turkey rug or this kind of carpet or turkey rug. There's also, I think, a growing awareness of what that consumer desire might do to individuals and how, you know, the sort of longing stares through the plate glass windows of department stores becomes something of a social problem. So, for example, the late 19th century is the moment in which Americans start talking about kleptomania as a female disease because women are unable to control themselves uh, in these department stores with all of these lovely uh, desirable goods laid out in front of them. They cannot stop themselves from pilfering them. And so doctors start, you know, treatments for for kleptomania and it's clearly a female problem. And I think that sort of goes back way beyond uh, the 19th century. I mean, you know, the sort of uh, wanting of of, uh, consumer goods dates back to before the 19th century as being a female problem. But we can see it in other places as well. I mean, Theodore Dreiser, as an American realist novel writer, writes in Sister Carrie this this story about a young girl from who arrives in Chicago and is sort of seduced uh, by all of these consumer goods. And again, you get that sense. He writes these passages of her kind of longingly wandering through department stores and imagining what it would be like for her to have that ribbon or for her to have that hat. And ultimately, it's that feeling that leads to her moral downfall. So in terms of where she's seduced. And, you know, I think that that tells us that the kind of the the growth of consumer culture and its 
its visibility in American life does make people worried about how that will affect people and particularly women emotionally and what that will do to the the moral fiber of their of their culture there's lots of um little vignettes of 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 exactly that in american literature of of the time isn't there sort of this lusting over over a ribbons or a hat or something beautiful through a window i think i'm trying to think of I think, is it Little Women? There might be a scene in Little Women. Yes. Oh, I was just going to say that. It's always poor Meg. (laughs) Yeah, Amy, I think it is, isn't it? Or Amy. Amy doesn't do too well either. Yeah, but I remember, the one I always remember is Meg in, I think it's Good Wives, when she gets seduced into buying silk for a new dress. I think it's sort of, she keeps having these chats with Sally Moffat, doesn't oh, yes. she? And in the end, she spends the money on this silk. And she feels so and bad. It's not, and she feels terrible because it was meant to be for her husband's yeah. overcoat. Yeah. And then she has this terribly humiliating and, you know, awful conversation with him where she said, oh, I spent your money. He said, oh, well, perhaps if it's a really lovely dress. And she said, oh, I didn't even have it made up yet. And she has to confront the, the horror of what she's done. And then she returns the, you know, because Louisa May Alcott, you know, this is a very didactic novel. Meg returns the silk. Well, I think she actually has to have Sally Moffat buy it off her in a, another humiliation. Yeah, and then yeah. she and then she gets her husband's coat made up. But there are loads of stories like that because, you know, if you're democratizing consumer goods, then what does that mean if if society is not equal, which it evidently wasn't, you know, is a sort of aspiration to an American dream, but which by the way is not a phrase they would have used yet. But they haven't got the the sort of socioeconomic structure to make it democratically available to everyone. And there's increasing worries about the wealth gap. I mean, as we move into the Gilded Age, they are aware, as we are today, of the increasing wealth gap that exists and the kind of riches that some people can enjoy and the terrible poverty in which others exist. Joe, where can people read more about this? You've written two, is it, uh, we've written one book that deals with particularly this and you have a few articles as well, which I'll make sure that we, I link in the um, podcast episode for people to, to find. But where can people find you and read a bit more? I'm on Twitter. Uh, my handle's at Historian Joe. And yes, I'm working on a book about the relationship between capitalism and emotions at the moment. And I'm looking at some of the stories we've been talking about today, uh, the way in which people's ideas about value are being challenged by the marketplace, even as they sort of try and think about what it means to value something you know, outside of the marketplace. Like, how do you get away from this valuation of dollars and cents? And what do you do with the feelings that you have about the things, the things that you've lost, the things that you want, about what might be priceless, which is a sort of 19th century invention, or what is a labor of love, also another 19th century invention. So I'm working on a book about that. um, And uh, I'm on Twitter. But you had a book, something published in 2017 is that right or am I no that's right yeah so then my my book in 2017 was called luxurious citizens the politics of 19th century consumption and that looks at how Americans went from being a nation of boycotters who seemed quite averse to consumption to embracing it by the American civil war as something that would be absolutely key to their 
to their national power. And yes, as you said, this, uh, what we've been chatting about today, the um, patriotism and consumption in the Civil War, was an article I published last year in the Journal of Civil War History. And I also published an article a couple of years ago in the Winterter Portfolio, which looks at sort of the rise of American advertising and how uh, consumption was cast as a pleasure rather than as a duty in the 1840s. Great. I look forward to your new book. Thank you so much for coming on Hidden Histories. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so much fun. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.